Welcome to another podcast by Victoria Point Baptist Church. We are glad you have joined us today. If you would like to connect with us as we aim to introduce people to Jesus by connecting with our local community and beyond, you can find out more at vpbc.com.au. Now, there's a saying that I really like in Leadership 101 that if you want to go fast, uh, go yourself. And um, if you want to go far, go together. And I really like that concept because I think it's really, it's a, big, it's a big concept, but it affects everything we do in our lives. And we see this in most areas in our life where anything happens. If anything is to happen, there needs to be the sense of unity. There's a group of people that are somewhat united to get something to happen. It's really hard to get something of significance to happen by yourself. Like, there's a sense of unity is really, really important. Uh, back in, sorry, back in Nam, though, back in, um, when I was back in Israel, in the army over there, uh, there was a, a rule that we had, and the rule was this. There's other rules as well, but this is my main one, was you're not allowed to talk about religion or politics. And you're like, what? What is there else in the life to talk about? Um, and it's, it's a rule that they brought in because uh, there was so much division. And so it was a rule that was supposed to encourage unity. And of course, all we ever talked about was religion and politics. Uh, So just sort of, I don't know if that worked or not, but it's this idea that sometimes there is division in unity and it can rob us of unity. But I think if we're really honest, we'd appreciate that a sense of unity is really significant in our own lives. A sense of unity is significant in our church lives, in our families, in our relationships. Um, There's nothing better than being in a beautiful sense of unity with your wife. It's a beautiful sense of being together. Uh, And it can be really, really hard if that isn't the case in our lives. Uh, there's a sense of unity that we see in the beginning in Genesis. Uh, there's, a, there's a narrative of, that we see where God created language because people were united. But they were united for the wrong cause. So the people were building this giant tower, like how good are we? And uh, God distributed them, split them up by giving them all different languages. And side note, I think languages is a really great testimony to the fact that God lives that he is real and he created, because uh, languages continually disappear off the face of the planet. Now, this is a side note, so I'm a little detour, uh, unplanned, but the, join me on this excursion. Um, that language, you know, languages, each year we get less and less languages. Languages are eroding at an alarming rate, different languages. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that we, no, we don't actually create languages. Languages aren't creating. There's a few uh, nerd fans who um, like who've created Klingon on Star, uh, Star Trek language. Uh, but languages don't just evolve themselves. And so we see this beautiful picture that languages were created and they're getting less and less and less. So it's really hard to understand where languages came from if there wasn't a creator. Side note, back on track, uh, unity. Unity is really good, and uh, unity is something that God really wants us to have, but he wants us to have it in the right place. And so it's really, really important. Now, humanity is unity. There's a sense of unity uh, that our society and our world has operating in it, and it operates in, in every area of our lives as well. We see this at work but it's limited. You see, the unity that the world offers is limited in scope, in breadth, and depth, and in significance. And it's limiting in how we live our lives, and it leaves us wanting more. And so I've picked out five, this is not an exhaustive list of ways that the world is united, 
Unity is a nice word. It's a new word. Add that to your dictionary. Um, and so I've come up with these five, and so you're welcome to disagree with me. There might be more. Uh, but uh, there's enforced unity. And we see this in particularly like dictatorships in China and Russia. I hope they're not listening. Uh, <laughs> scared of them people. Uh, but uh, there's a sense of unity that's enforced, and we, we see this as like in control, and we see control mechanisms at work in our own lives, where you know you're gonna you're gonna fit the line, you're gonna fit the creed, and I mean, it's some and, and the churches are not immune to this as well. There's 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 a, not a particularly nice part of church history where churches have used this enforced unity to get unity. And it's control-driven. It was, this is what you need to believe. This is how you believe it. This is, how you, this is your behavior you need to have. Other religions operate that way. Um, other belief systems operate that way. And it's an enforced submission. And it's, it's basically we're going to eliminate anything else that doesn't fit the narrative that we want. It's an uh, exclusive ideology. It's a dictatorship. This is, this is the only way. And right back, and I mean, this is, you know, we want to be honest and authentic and transparent with our church history. Uh, back in the first three, 300 years of church history, uh, there was a whole heap of different expressions of Christianity. And then with uh, Constantine and Roman Empire, they chose one brand of Christianity and said this is the exclusive way. And so, so Christianity was this diverse, rich group of people who love Jesus. And it narrowed down the sense of dictatorship to, to a brand. And we, we see that through, through the Dark Ages. We see this period of this brand of Christianity that controlled and, and seek to repress people, I suppose, to have the sense of unity so they could do things. And uh, so it's not a particularly nice part, but then we come to the Reformation and that all changes and we, people start to rediscover the personal in, rela relationship with Jesus. Beautiful. Uh, the second one is emotive. And emotive uh, pull, pulls us in a sense of unity. Um, probably the best way to describe this is, you know, the queen passed away. There was this solidarity that most of the world sort of had. Like, she was a good person. We all loved her. There was a unity that came together. There's a unity that can come about by celebrations when your sport team wins, finally. There's a sense of unity. You stand together and you're like, hey, this is great. There's a sense of unity. Um, natural disasters. We pull together as humanity. And so it's good. And so not all these unities are bad. But these are different expressions. But they are limited they are fleeting. They don't last. This is a limited unity that is here. And the third one is coerced. This is like manipulated unity. And, and we see this in church history as well. It's, it's an unfortunate reality that people get in the way of our relationships with God. People try to control other people. And we see cults forming. We see people manipulating people's emotions. We see people manipulating people in their belief systems and exerting in a control over them. And it's not healthy. We, uh, we have this mentality in our culture. It's almost like a social, the social etiquette of our culture is, you know, everything's accepted apart from Christianity in our culture. It's becoming the norm. And it's a hard space for us as Christians because it's like our belief is that Jesus is the only way. And it's kind of like the only philosophy, the ideology and religion that they don't want. And to me, that points to the fact that it's true. Because why would the rest of society hate Christians so much? When Christians, we just want to love people more. Why are we hated so much? Like, it doesn't make sense, unless it's true. 
But so it's, it's a really interesting thought uh, about unity that's coerced. It's, a, it's an interesting thought that people who don't believe in God get upset by the values that come from God that they don't believe in, written the book they don't acknowledge. So it's, a, it's an interesting thought. And then you've got conformity. And conformity is, is, is it's like you have something in common that unites you. And I mentioned uh, probably earlier this year, if you, if you remember, there's a, there's a town in New Zealand called... Um, it was founded by English settler in 1862 by James Bull. And the whole town um, named everything after bulls. And it's a sense of unity that came together. And like, it, it's really quite clever. Um, if you like puns and you're, you're a dad and you love dad jokes, you should go and live in this town. Like, it is awesome. Get this. All right, so the police station is called Constable. The, ch- the church is called Forgivable. The medical center, Curable. The town hall is Sociable. The tourist information center is Informable. The public loos are Relievable. <laughs> the gift shop is Desirable. And the cold store is Freezable. Uh, the pun never stops, and, and, and everything, it's like this, everyone has got on board this idea in a sense of kind of fun and unity. Um, they've got a sister town in UK that's called Cow. They chose a sister town that's, you know, to fit the pun, you know. Uh, but there's a limited unity in that, you know, like that's cute and that's quaint, and I'm going to go there and visit because I'm so intrigued. But it's, it, it's, it's not a sense of unity that is going to be lasting. It's going to have a legacy of change in your life. It's not going to radically reshape your life, is it? And it's an incredible picture when we look at what unity is and where it comes from. You know, we have passions and hobbies. Unities form around the randomest things. You know, your type of car, your type of motorbike. You know, we've got posty bikes. Um, we bought a posty bike. We did the trip to the top of Australia. It's incredible how many groups love posty bikes. I mean, it's such a ridiculous bike, and they, people love them. Uh, but there's a sense of unity there, and it's camaraderie. When we were up the top of Australia on these posty bikes, we saw another group of posty bikes who were as stupid as us. <laughs> and we sat there, and we had the best conversation because it's like, what are you doing? Like, this is crazy. Uh, but there's something that we had in common: is a unity. And unity, the last one I've got is unity of leadership. And this is when you've got like a charismatic leader and people are willing to follow someone. And, and, and this could be good and can be really bad as well. And so if you've got a good leader, and we see this in biblical history, in Old Testament history, we see when there was a good king, the people thrived and prospered. When there was a bad king, the people struggled. And so there's this limited capacity for unity provided by a leader because usually after a good leader, there's a bad leader. And it seems to follow that you're sort of bound by the type of leader you follow. And, and, and leaders usually get their influence by creating large followings. They try to be popular. Now, I want to make this point um, that, that unity is a powerful force of change, but Christianity really should not exist. Like, there's no way Christianity should exist ever. And what I mean is this. I mean, Jesus, he, he created a unity that transformed the world. He created a unity uh, amongst believers that touched nations, that arguably a quarter of the world now have had an impact with directly. Uh, there, there's such an incredible 
effect the Jesus effect has had on society, but it does not make sense and it should not have happened. And I mean this, Jesus didn't use any of society's forms of creating unity. Jesus didn't enforce anything. He didn't push legality. He didn't even push the rules. You know, he argued with the religious leaders about their rules. And he's like, hey, you're really, you know, you're sort of missing the heart of this whole thing. That's not what a leader who's trying to rule and have a sense of unity that's enforced does. You have lots of rules. You can you control people. Jesus didn't control people at all. Uh, Jesus didn't use emotion. He didn't manipulate. He, didn't, he wasn't like, oh, he wasn't building a crowd. He wasn't doing a show. There's places he'd go, he's like, I can't do miracles here because you just want miracles. He's like, I'm not here to perform for you guys. I'm not here to do treat, cheap, cheap tricks. I'm not here to entertain. He didn't get people following him. His heart wasn't to get people to follow him who were impressed by him. He didn't coerce people. He actually made it really hard for people to follow him. Like he, he wasn't just like encouraging people to follow him. He actually made it really, really hard. So there's a rich young ruler. Um, we don't really know the context of how big that is, but he's probably a significant ruler of some province. Came and said, hey, pretty much, you know, what is it I need to do to be saved and to enter into the kingdom of God and to be a part of where God's kingdom is going? And Jesus is like, you need to sell everything and give it to the poor. And he's like, what? Who does that? Like, if, if it was a modern-day politician, they'd be like, all right, I'm coming around to your house for dinner. We're going to be best, best buds because you're rich. You know, Jesus didn't do that. He made it incredibly hard for people to follow him. He, he, his disciples said to him, they came up to him and said, Jesus, you realize you offend us by the things you're saying. And he turned around and said, unless you have uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me, which is in their Jewish culture the most offensive thing you could possibly say. He's like, he intentionally made it hard because he didn't want to become popular. There's no reason or there is no logical, explainable reason why Jesus changed the face of the planet. Uh, he had nothing, he didn't collect people who had something in common. He, he grabbed the most uneducated, unsophisticated, ordinary people that you could imagine. He grabbed people on polar, episode, uh, polar opposite opinions about Roman rule. You've got Matthew, the tax collector, who worked for Rome, and you've got Simon, the zealot, who was fighting against Rome in a, in a, in a war. He's, 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 a, he's a rebel. And he's like, okay, you guys follow me. He didn't bring anything in common that people should follow him. He wasn't a, a beautiful leader. And I say this respectfully. Isaiah 53 says this, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He resisted the idea of popular. He died lonely with a handful of friends and family. Uh, the fact that Christianity exists at all in any shape or form is an absolute miracle. Let alone reshape the world that we know. Times Magazine lists Jesus as the most significant person, the most influential person in human history. Our date system is, you know, started with Jesus as the most influential person in human history. It's a really, really significant the impact he's had. So what is the X factor? You know, they call it the X factor because I don't know what it is. Jesus had the X factor that brought people to, to passionately follow and lay their life down for him. 
What is the X factor? Because it wasn't any humanity level of leadership. You know, there's a thousand books on leadership. Jesus didn't do what people try to do in our world to have leadership and to have unity and to go somewhere and do things. And there's a really beautiful picture in chapter 17 where we unpack why. Uh, See, three years after... So Jesus journeyed with his disciples for three years and eating and loving and journeying together. And uh, chapter 17 of John is called the Beloved Chapter because it's a whole chapter, uh, unlike any other chapter in in the Gospels, uh, that you see Jesus' heart expressed. So it's his farewell prayer. Jesus is, this is the last recorded words that we have of Jesus before he died and resurrected. And it's, it's, it's like a prayer of blessing over his uh, followers and his disciples. And it's the longest prayer we've got. And uh, it's actually not, not for us directly, but we are invited to participate and listen and hear his heart. We're in, in, invited into a conversation between Jesus and God. And it's a really cool conversation. And uh, we see in this the X factor of what it is about Jesus that unites people. So if you've got your Bibles, um, it is John 17, verse 20, a prayer. Uh, this is the prayer. Jesus is continuing a, a prayer that first prayed for um, himself as, as he's going into this next stage of um, death and resurrection. Then he prays for his disciples. And then he prays uh, for his disciples for this sense of unity. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's a beautiful oneness here. There's a sense of Godhead, the Trinity, the Father and Son together. That unity is what Jesus is praying that the disciples, and and more than the disciples, because this is the disciples of the disciples, this is the church, this is us that we would be a part of this unity that he had, that we would be a part of this. And uh, the reality is this, uh, the source of true unity, here's here's a fun fact for the day to take away, the source of true unity is God, God is love. It is his very essence. And and so when when we we, we are divided, we're operating outside of our calling, outside of our purpose, and there's there's a thousand things you can be divided over, but there's a sense of God is calling us to be a part of his oneness together, and that's a beautiful place to be. Our Christianity sees the source of love, life, to be flowing from God through the believer. 1 John 4, 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. This is only made possible, the unity that's in Jesus, because he gave himself to do it. You know, if we try to... Cr- create our own unity, we're going to be using some of these things. We're going to manipulate, we're going to conform, or we're going to try to oppress people to get unity. But Jesus' unity is himself. He's given us himself as the way that we experience his unity. But it's not just something that we accept at, at salvation, when we accept him as our Lord and King. It's something that we continue to abide in. And we rest in him and we spend time with him and he, he gives us this unity as a byproduct of intimacy with him. So when we spend time with Jesus, we're naturally going to be falling in love with each other. Like my heart enlarges for you guys when I spend time with God. It doesn't matter how nice you are, how unnice you are. Uh, the more time I spend with God, the better you look. How good is that? You guys smell amazing today because I spent time with God today. 
Like, it's, it's this reality that, you know, spending time with God is this, this beautiful unity. He is the source of unity. He gives us unity because he gives us himself. And uh, inside this unity, we see there's this oneness, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. We are part of this perfect unity, but we don't make it happen ourselves. And if we try to make unity happen, we're going to be trying to socially control and manipulate our world. And it's a hard one because we want to you know, have unity, and unity is important. But how do we do this? How do we do this in the workplace when other people don't have Jesus, the X factor? They don't have God's love and life in them. It's a really hard one to navigate. We cannot make perfect unity happen. Uh, it's an agent of change. Unity is an agent of change. It's, it has impact. It's significant. But here's the thing. Uh, when we're operating in perfect unity, we naturally stop trying to change and control people around us. And this is a big one. Because the, the, the danger here as a church is that we, we start allowing the world's version of unity to start to affect how we live our lives. And we start to operate with the world's sense of unity and we start to control the people around us. And it's like, uh, you know, the, and it's, it's subtle at times, you know, like, oh, you know, um, the, the manipulation can be subtle, you know, trying to get your spouse to do something you want them to do. It can be subtle, but there can be manipulation at work. There can be coercion. And that's, that's not how God operates. God doesn't manipulate anyone to him. He, he opens the door and he desires to know and he, he pursues his, he loves you so much, but he's not going to manipulate or twist your arm. He invites us to be a part of him. As we spend time with him, we start to take and see that operate in our own lives. Our relationships with God's love often, without, sorry, relationships without God's love often function, they have like a functional unity. And there's a danger in a functional unity. And a functional unity is a unity that we derive that will get stuff to happen, you know. And we have to have some level of unity in lives, in our life. I have to get the kids out of the home to get to school on time. There's a sense that we've got to work together to get this to happen. If you've, ever, if you've got kids, you'll understand. It's like hurting something that doesn't want to be hurted. And uh, it's, it's, it's incredibly taxing trying to get kids to go where you want them to go. So there's a sense of unity that's naturally there. But if I'm not spending time with God, I'm going to try to use humanity's ways of creating unity instead of resting and trusting in God. And it's incredible how God changes things when you stop trying to control people. When you trust God and pray for other people, but you start to remain in his love and allow him to do the change. It's a, really, it's, it's a, it's a simple message, but it's profound in its impact in our lives. So I have the privilege of working with a lot of people in their marriages. And uh, it, I'm going to broad stroke this here, so I hope I don't offend everyone or anyone. But there's a sense that most marriages that are struggling, there's a sense of where is this unity coming from? Most marriages, I would do a broad stroke here and say that most marriages that are struggling, both people are not resting in God. And it's a blanket statement. We challenge me later on that, but I'm yet to see a, a functioning, healthy marriage work, spiritually healthy, where both parties aren't spending time with God. And see, spending time with God makes your spouse look amazing. It's better than alcohol. Like, it's great. It's the best spirit. Hey, it links. Yes. 
but there's this thing that, you know, when we spend time with God, and so when, when people say, hey, um, you know, marriage is, is struggling, my first go-to question is, how's your walk with God? Because if you're abiding in him, he brings a sense of unity that you're invited into part of his unity, and he naturally does this unity thing in the world around you. It's a beautiful thing. It's the X factor. Jesus at work in your life, through your life, by you spending time with him. So how's your walk with God going? If you want a better marriage, be a better believer. No, I don't mean that, but be, be in his presence. And that creates a heart change for you and your spouse. Uh, the perfect unity is a gift that grows as we abide and spend time in his presence. And um, I, I really dislike this next slide. Like, it's, this is the worst because it's so cheesy. And I was trying to find words that were not cheesy. But hopefully it's so cheesy that you'll remember it. All right. We, unity grows where worship flows. There's so much Christianese in that. I hate it. But the point is there. That, uh, that when we spend time in his presence, when we're worshipping together, there's a sense of unity. You know, unity in the body as a collection, as us, if we spend our time fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the little things don't matter. He, he changes our heart. He births unity in and amongst us when our, when our hearts are fixed on his heart. And we start to see the world through his eyes. There's an incredible unity that's birthed. And so most divisions, I'll say most because there's probably outlying cases, but most divisions, most hardships that we have relationally are from a lack of unity and a lack of spending time with Jesus. And I'm, I'm sorry if I'm trying to simplify something because I realise relationships are complex. There's a lot of things that go on. But there's this theme that I really want us to take hold of. And it's, sorry it's so cheesy, I, you know, I'll be, I'll be just trying to work that for the next one. Unity grows where worship flows. It's important, you can reword that in words that you like. Uh, the second one is that we, we pray for unity. Uh, we pray for unity, you know why? Because you're not the source of it. You pray for things that you don't have, you can't make happen yourself. We, we, we pray for unity as believers because we aren't the source of it and we were dependent on him for supplying the unity, for supplying the love. I want God to love through me. I'm not the best husband, but with God's love, I can be a really good husband. It's God's love. It's his unity that changes and creates change. Uh, God's unity is an embodied experience. It's not just an intellectual pursuit. Uh, Christianity is not abstract thinking, but concrete interactions. So in your relationships, are they fractured and divided? Are you trying to control your way out of a fractured relationship or into a fractured relationship? Uh, Jesus didn't try to control people or situations, so why are you? Like, why am I? Why do I try to control people around me? And I'm, as a parent, I realise that, you know, you want to control your kids from running across the road and getting hit by a car. I get that there's a level of care and, and it can look like control, but ultimately we want to be able to, to, to release people, to, to explore God, to discover God, and for God to do the change in their life. The emphasis is God does the work of transformation, not you. God does the work. He, it's his burden that, that we become like him. See, when we try to control people, we make them like us. We don't want, I don't, there doesn't need to be any more Sams in the world. There's enough Sams. Yeah, we need more Jesus influence in our life. And so I, I've got to stop controlling people and try to control the outcomes of life and just spend time in his presence. I'm sorry if I'm oversimplifying, but it's, it is important. 
Um, yeah, so are we praying to fix the other person or are you praying that you would enter into his unity? It's a difference. Are you praying for unity that God brings? Are you encouraging the other person, your spouse, your friends, your, relation, your relatives to spend time with God? Or are you trying to fix the outcome? Because you're going to land at some form of control. And there's a purpose of unity. Uh, when we embrace Jesus' unity, we are effective at birthing God's kingdom. Uh, Christians being a life-giving presence, reflecting who Jesus is, is such a magnetic force. It's so inc- I love going to groups that just genuinely love Jesus and a sense of unity. You just like, you want to be there, hey. You want to be there, with it, you know, but you know straight away. You go to family, you might go to family gatherings and there's certain topics that are highly divisive. And like everyone's sitting around, please don't mention that, please don't mention that thing. You know, you know what I mean. And, um, and someone mentions it, oh, it becomes a toxic space. You're like, I want out, someone please phone me, I need to get out of here. Um, that's division. No one wants to be a part of it. Uh, but unity breathes God's purpose into your reality. And it's a really beautiful thing, but it's unity done right. Uh, verse 22, we're nearly done, hanging in there. Uh, verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, and they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This glory that we are actually invited to be a part of is the reflection of God. We're revealing God to the world through being united. And here's a beautiful thing. For in God's unity, you don't need to give up your individuality. God's unity is a beautiful thing. It encourages, it encourages individuality. It encourages you to be you. You know, there's a, I, I was talking to a, um, a number of people this week about, uh, in the Bible, you're not going to read a lot about your identity in the Bible. There's not a lot in the Bible about you, because it's not about you. But here's the thing, our world is fixated on trying to discover, self-discover, who, who am I? I'm going to find myself. I'm going to go into the hills for six months and discover me. That's a ridiculous notion. The only way you're going to understand and discover who you are is in God. See, all the identity messages in the Bible about you are in Him. You are adopted sons and daughters of God. Like Your identity is only discovered in God. So if you're tempted to go run away and find yourself, go spend time with God. It's way better, cheaper as well, and way, way more exciting. But there's a danger here. The danger is that often we, we, we avoid some of the hard discussions, some of the hard topics in life because we try to preserve unity, and there's a place for that. I'm not saying that we open Pandora's box and have you know, really complex argumentative discussions. The reason I, I feel that as a community, as a society, that, that we can't really have really deep, hard discussions is we don't really get what true unity first is. And I love, in my life group, I love having deep, hard discussions, robust discussions about all things that happen because there's a genuine sense of unity. And as a church, I believe as as we're able to engage better with the world, if we first hold on to and understand what unity truly is, that it's in him, from him, through him, through God, we can start to engage in the world without being defensive, without being offended. It's a beautiful thing because to explore your identity, when you know that your identity is in him. A dan- there's a danger here, but 
And um, the danger is that we often give up our individual expressions to fit the mould of the world. But you are beautiful. Like, you created you. Like, there's only one Simon. There's only one Nico. There's, there's only one Doug. You know, you are beautifully you. Uh, don't, don't let conformity change who you are. But as you spend time with God, he brings unity that allows true expression, true freedom. It's a beautiful thing. There's, there's this last verse, in, well, in the last uh, pictures in Revelation 7, 9. We see this, this picture, uh, and I'll read it. After this I looked, and there before me was a great number, multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So in the beginning, in Genesis, we've got this picture of God disseminating people with language because they were united in the wrong cause. And then in Revelation, you see this end of the Bible, you see this beautiful picture, all in the languages coming together to glorify God. See, when, when our hearts are united in Him, He brings us together. And, and there's, there's not just one language. There's multitudes of languages and cultures and diversities. That's the richness of the human experience, is, is the individuality. It's a beautiful thing. And it's celebrated in God in such a profound way. You know, if there's a group of geese called a gaggle, uh, a group of bees is called a swarm, uh, a group of believers walking in intimacy, we should call it perfect unity because that's what God does. Uh, let, let me pray. I'm going to pray because I think I've said enough. I'm going to invite the band up and uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, would you create in us a oneness and a unity uh, that allows freedom, expression, us to be who we truly are without conforming to social pressures and conformity? Uh, Lord, would you create in us a clean heart? Would you create in us a desire to get along? Uh, but above all, Lord, Lord, would we just learn to enjoy your presence? Lord, in our week, would we learn to worship you, to lift you up, to honour you, and be a part of what you are doing? Would you redefine our human experience in the context of your unity? Would you birth unity in our relationships? Would you restore unity in marriages that are struggling, friendships and family that have divided relationships? Lord, we just pray that you would be the source of unity, and we wouldn't try to control or manipulate other people. But we would simply trust you and pray that your unity would be forged and formed in our lives. Lord, it's so important that we have unity so that we can achieve the things of your purpose. Lord, we want to be effective as your people. Lord, we want to be a witness. We want to be a light on a hill. We want to be salt to this world. Lord, but that's only going to happen when we have the sense of unity from you. So would you, would you meet us where we are now and challenge us and encourage us? In Jesus' name, amen.